Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. David Gura in New York with Pim Fox today. Tom Keen is off this week. George Goncalves joins us now in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Great to have you with us. And let's start with, uh, with the news yesterday. Janet Yellen speaking in the afternoon uh, at the University of Michigan. Help us with the substance of that, that speech, what she had to say about the U.S. economy. I, mean, I think it's interesting that, you know, obviously if you compare to how the communication has evolved in the last six months, you know, pre-elec- pre-election, there was that one speech about, you know, let's, let, let's let, let the economy run hot. Because let's just let it go and let's see how far it goes. Let's keep, get inflation boiling in the background, you know, to this kind of this this you know this evolution to what we heard yesterday about you know we're, we're obviously on track and, and and they're still you know they're still you know a little bit cautious because they want to they want to ensure that the recovery is sustainable, but they're now you know the, it feels like confidence is building and you know they want to get a little bit out ahead. I mean, is that viewed as hawkish or is that more neutral? You know, we'll see. But I, I do think that you know, they've been slowly pivoting. I mean, they did hike to you know, press meetings back-to-back, if you want to consider that back-to-back. So, I mean, they are getting a little bit faster on, on the tightening uh, agenda. So it, it is, I think, consistent with what, we've, what they've done and what they've said. Where do you fall in this debate over how well or how easily the Fed could both wind down this balance sheet and continue to, to raise rates? How difficult an undertaking is that going to be for the central bank? Right. I mean, look, I think it could be a challenge because, look, at the end of the day, the way they're raising rates, again, I'm not going to bore your, your listeners to, to this thing. I mean, in the past, the markets used to set the price of money, and the Fed now is targeting the level of rates, but paying the banks and paying money markets a level of interest rates in order to nudge them higher. Well, it's easy to pay someone to push up rates. It's much more difficult to force them to buy securities that they were once warehousing. So that distinction, I think, is is not fully appreciated by markets. I do believe that you know, if the balance sheet is much more challenging than just raising rates. George, why is the debate uh, almost mute when it comes to uh, rationalizing the balance sheet or reducing the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve? What's wrong with just keeping it the way it is? I think you know, part of this could be that you look up, it, as you raise rates, I'm not going to say it's going to become untenable to, le- to hold the level of rates. That, uh, let's say they get to 2 3% in rates and their balance sheet is paying 3%. Not that they're going to go upside down on their level of interest because they have currency in circulation, but the concept of they're paying, they're remunerating money back to the U.S. government. Number one, at this point, they'll be only paying the banks. So this idea that them paying the banks to keep rates elevated is really an artifact of having too much reserves in the system, and the only way you can extinguish reserves is to shrink the balance sheet. But won't that increase the value of the dollar? No, actually, this is the interesting part, and this is the interesting part that I think. The nuance of this, in my view, is that you know the dollar has been super focused on short-term rates, and typically, you know, the interest rate parity and just kind of the relative level of rates across the world is what guides capital to different banking systems. So U.S. rates are the highest, and so capital has been coming to the U.S., but largely sitting in the front end of the curve. If you can get the you know the balance sheet to shrink, 
you and, and not use short-term rates, which I know, you know, it's a huge debate out there. Will they be doing it in tandem? You know, I, I'm of the view that, and have been of the view that this idea of we've had unconventional easing, so why can't we have unconventional tightening? Why can't they just raise rates to like a, you know, one or two percent and go on hold with the balance sheet do the rest of it? I always characterize it as like a, a Saturn V rocket launcher. <laughs> you got to get a, you got to get rates high enough because if rates are too low and they flatten the yield curve by raising rates from the front end, it actually does more damage than good. So I do think that you know, bringing it back to the dollar that the dollar is less sensitive to long-term rates. And so if long-term rates can do the heavy lifting and actually tighten financial conditions, then they will rely less on the front end. But that's going to be the debate that we're going to have with this current Fed as well as the next Fed, whoever Trump appoints it. George Goncalves of uh, Nomura joining us here on Bloomberg Surveillance. How important is the, the macro debate about when and how the Fed uh, winds down this balance sheet versus uh, at a more granular level, which securities the Fed is going to sell? I mean, I think the macro still um, uh, drives the, the, the decision process. I mean, on the micro level, uh, they, they will be uh, aware of market conditions. Uh, I mean, there, there's still a huge – I mean, at, at the end of the day, there's a clearing price for every security, right? I mean, of course, you don't want to become disruptive while you're trying to uh, uh, scale back. But we do think that you know that spreads have been too tight, yield curves have been too flat, or, or long-term rates are not offering enough compensation. And so as those things adjust – Investors will t- will take the other side gladly, so I mean I think that you know the micro will 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 drive the execution part of it, but the macro is what's going to launch it because if if the outlook does not look good, they're not going to let the balance sheet shrink. I mean if anything were to happen or if growth were to falter in the second half of the year, who cares? This discussion is really a moot one. Speak to the the novelty of of this situation. A lot of people are drawing a parallel to the the so-called taper tantrum from a few years back. Are there lessons to be learned from what happened there, or is this situation uh, entirely different? I think the taper um, experience is actually probably what's driving their cautiousness uh, and how they uh, in, engage the markets and how that, like, if indeed they're going to let the balance sheet roll off, and that's a huge debate, but at the end of the year or the start of next year, they're telling us one year in advance. So they're really trying to get out ahead and create as much lead time as possible. So I think that that's an artifact also of the taper tantrum, really leaving a scar on you know, the Fed did not want rates to double in basically one year, which ended up hurting housing market for six to nine months afterwards in late 13 and early 14. So I mean, they, they, they want to be gradual. It's part of their their their, their approach. Um, and, we'll, and I think from there, we'll see what, what happens. I want you to tell us what you believe will happen with a Trump Federal Reserve. So this is a that's a great question. I mean, we don't know quite yet quite who's going to be the the, the, the so-called um, you know, uh, chair of, of of the Fed and but someone and, who may be business friendly. True, and so the question then really becomes, you know, do you want higher rates or do you want to create an environment that's conducive for growth? And if you listen to just the the overall platform that President Trump ran on, as well as just the you know the, the the people that are in his cabinet, they're pro growth, pro business folks, as you as you allude to. So I mean, the Fed is an independent organization, an independent body. Uh, I, I do think that you know at the end of the day, whoever goes in there is going to be looking at you know, what's right for the economy without you know uh, discounting all of the hard work that the Fed has done at, at maintaining credibility. So they're not going to let, let inflation just run amok. But I do think this idea of you know, getting out of the balance sheet could be tied to a, a Trump Fed more so. I mean, if you listen to some of the comments of some, some of the economic advisors, you know, pre-election, 
the idea of having mortgages on the Fed balance sheet was something that, that felt foreign and alien to them. So you know, having treasuries makes sense. It's U.S. government. But having agencies uh, mortgages less. How about uh, the, the issue of rules-basedness? We heard the, the Fed chair talking about this yesterday at the University of, of Michigan saying that the Fed is under some a threat. You have a lot of people in this administration, a lot of people on Capitol Hill, Republicans who would like to, to see this happen. How does that sort of threaten to, to reorient your world? I'm not convinced that we're going to get a rules-based system. I, th- I still think that um, you know, having the flexibility to, to really you know, call out what's going to happen and, and having a, an opinion on the outlook is critical and, and just being too rigid could be dis- also disruptive. So I'm not really a buyer of the, of the rules-based. Uh, but I do think that you know, there's going to be a preference-based. and that They're going to be thinking about what makes sense again, for achieving their growth targets. I think growth will, again, you know, trump everything else. We've got about a minute left. We'll come back with you. But uh, on that note, how much is personnel driving the eagerness that this Fed has to, to do something with the balance sheet? Um, I think at the end of the day, um, everyone cares about their legacy. And I, I think just as we saw the transition from Greenspan to Bernanke and Bernanke to, to, to Yellen, I mean, as long as the conditions are met and, the out, and they're if the outlook looks like it's in line with what the Fed was envisioning, then it, it, it probably makes sense for you know, Chair Yellen to at least set the you know the ground floor and the, and the basic building blocks for the balance sheet evolution. Them actually pulling the trigger that might might be the actual next uh, next Fed. George Goncalves, numerous head of U.S. rate strategy for fixed income, and we were swapping travel stories here a few minutes ago. We'll spare you the details about our travel horror stories. But George, you've been on the road a lot. You've been to Japan recently and Mexico uh, as well. And let's let's use those trips to talk a bit about central banking in those those regions, if we could. Starting with uh, Japan, uh, what do we know about what the the Bank of Japan is going to do when it does in fact see the economy hit its two percent inflation target? I mean, at this point, I think uh, I think I've used the analogy before, and I'll use it again. I think you know, just you know, think about it. Even the Fed, who's been the most prepared, has not had a well-defined exit strategy on their balance sheet. I mean, I think if BOJ gets what it ultimately wants, and if, if Japan ends up being much more of a prosperous, you know, prosperous place, and growth is increasing, and inflation is increasing. They'll deal with that problem when they get there. I, I really don't, don't see, you know, I don't see it being an issue in the very short run. But you know, over you know months and years, if if inflation were to continue to run out of control, they them too, they themselves would have to start tightening too, which would be a complete you know change in policy for the last 20, 30 years. And for the, in their eyes, they probably view it as a good problem to have. But uh, I think at this point, it's probably too early. Help us understand the, the role of the Japanese central bank in the everyday lives of, of the Japanese. Uh, is, is this something they care a great deal about? How is it influencing their economy in a direct way, day in and day out? Um, I think, look, I mean, uh, central banks don't like to be in the in the, in the the limelight if they don't have to. Uh, I, I think that it's not necessarily something that's really driving you know, uh, the, the kind of social fabric or changes within the Japanese um, e- economy or, or the way people change their, their investment decisions. But, I mean, I do think it, it, it's kind of that, um, that, that, that hand that's kind of pushing things along. And so I think in, you know, investors as well as the, the, the overall population know that there's a lot of interventions that are happening. I don't think it's necessarily altering things. Because if it did, to be, to be quite honest, you know, animal spirits would be much stronger. Because mm-hmm. if you thought that, hey, one day your purchasing power is going to be eroded, wouldn't you be speeding up your purchases? But yet there's still a healthy level of skepticism that this is going to work or not. George, uh, are the central banks, uh, for example, Bank of Japan, and also, as, you, as uh, David said, you went to Mexico, are they out of sync with each other? 
Um, I think that you know, uh, there's clearly uh, developed markets are much more in sync, um, uh, and it's, again, it's healthy to see the Fed kind of be the first mover into easing and then the first mover out and tightening, and slowly that's going to result in a tapering of ECB and eventually, you know, back to Japan at some points and have to shift from this really, you know, heavy-handed approach in, in the markets. Will and, they be selling U.S. Treasuries? I mean, they're going to have a ba- they have a balance sheet as well, and a lot of that is filled up with U.S. paper. Yeah, so I think one of the one of the things that we've benefited for the last, you know, really three to five years has been that as global rates have been low everywhere else and our yields have been generally higher, although low, we benefited from all that capital. And that's another thing that the Fed has to calibrate and policymakers in general have to calibrate. If rates are rising because we have less foreign sponsorship, that's also a, a, a big consideration. Looking at dollar Mexico right now at 1869.69, you were down in, in, in Mexico, Mexico City. <laughs> Uh, what's the mood there like? And and when you look at, at what's driving currency, say, or what's what's driving the bond market in Mexico, is it apprehension about what might happen with the trading relationship with the U.S. or are there other sort of structural issues that are that are weighing on that economy? I, mean, I think you know you know if we had this conversation two months ago, we would be you know much more worried about you know the negotiations around NAFTA and just you know the change in U.S. U.S. leadership. But I, you know just kind of going down there and just, you know, just kind of you know really having my own personal view of what what I see and, sure. and feel. Uh, you know it did felt like, you know, I had been to the UK right after the Brexit vote and and just very similar feeling feeling that okay, these things take long time to work through and it's not you're not going to change your your decision process now just because you've had a new piece of information, you have to see how things unfold. So I mean, I do I do think that, you know, Bikiko has you know raised rates a lot, and and if the Fed is raising rates, you know our view from our EM team is that the the, the you know the, the Mexican central bank would raise rates at the same speed as the Fed just to kind of keep things level. But at some point, the real question will become you know if you know if uh, if these if these central banks, especially in the emerging markets, which got more defensive around you know the the trade issues that could have happened. Yeah, we don't know yet what's going to happen. But if, if it's not as worst case scenario, do they have to at least uh, stay behind the curve and, and maybe even ease? We don't know. I mean, there's been a, uh, a huge differentiation between EM and, D and, and developed market central banks, you know, really focused on local factors. If, you know, if, if, for example, Mexico is in a much, much better place, do they have to tighten as much? If not, maybe just go flat or even ease one day. It's about 30 seconds left here. We're looking ahead to another ECB meeting in a, in a couple of weeks, on the 27th, I, I believe. Uh, the concerns the same scarcity tapering. What are we going to hear? Do you think from the the president of the ECB? Um, so this is the, the the first month of the of the official start of the taper process. Um, I think that they're going to you know give an update on how that's going. Uh, I think that you know they they need to be you know still remain on the on the cautious side considering that inflation is not going vertical like it felt like you know a month and a half ago. You know this you know a lot of it is linked back to the oil markets and of course if geopolitical issues were to flare up again. You know, we'll see how the reaction function is then. But for this month alone, we're not expecting much change. Um, we, don't, we think that you know, any sort of drastic change from the ECB is more at the end of the year, early part of next year. Thanks very much for uh, joining us. Much appreciated. George uh, Concalves, he is the Nomura head of U.S. rate strategy for fixed income, but obviously uh, spending time also in Japan and in Mexico. On a morning when Haven assets are all the rage here, Pim, bring in our next guest, uh, yeah. if you would. Haven assets, <laughs> yeah. indeed. All right, well, let's bring in uh, Bob Michael. He is the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Global Chief Investment Officer, also head of Global Fixed Income, FX 
and commodities. Bob, you got a lot on your plate there. I want to throw a you... A lot of safe havens. A, a lot of safe... Yeah, right. Yeah, good for you. A lot of safe havens. I, I want you to just put all of the, what you're doing in the context of the uh, Trump administration's stimulus slash infrastructure uh, project or plan, and uh, also tell us about the tax reform and how that may already be baked into, well, an S&P 500 that's 2357 right now, and, you know, rates, you know what they are. Well, the, the market's all about probability. So there is some probability priced in that Trump will get his policies through, whether it's some form of infrastructure spend or tax reform. But I think we have to go back pre-election and recognize that there was a pretty broad-based recovery underway anyway. You were seeing wage gains, which a couple years ago had been year-over-year 1.7%. They were moving up towards 2.5%. Now they're 2.7%, 2.8% year-over-year. And the Fed had already raised rates once and was debating a second time. So there was some underlying strength in the economy. Uh, there was a recovery that was underway, and the central banks were looking to normalize. I think if Trump can get through some of the stimulus he's talking about, that's icing on the cake, and then that changes the metrics on what the Fed will have to do. What would that metric be? For example, let's say tax reform. Let's say that that is the program that they're able to get through sometime maybe before the end of the fiscal year. Well, tax reform obviously makes company PEs look more attractive immediately. One of the things that we've been struck by is that companies have spent the last seven, eight years since the, the crisis taking cost out. I've been doing this for 36 years. I don't remember a time where corporate America has been this lean and this efficient. And they actually don't really know what to do with their profitability. So a lot of them the last couple quarters have been raising debt, buying back shares, raising dividends, or buying each other. If there's some incentive for them to invest, if tax reform can push through broader consumption, then I think they'll be in a position to make those investments in CapEx because they'll see aggregate final demand pick up. And then earnings will drive stocks higher, not simply P.E. expansion. If, if none of that happens or there's a delay before that happens, how long can the, the squeeze that you've described continue? How long can companies continue to sort of wring uh, costs out of their, their balance sheets? I think we've pretty much gotten to the point where, where that's largely been done. And I think when you see the amount of corporate debt issuance over the last 18 months and what it's been used for, it tells you that companies were just looking for other things to do rather than take out costs and grow their businesses. Maybe returning some of that capital to shareholders or buying back shares, raising dividends, those were the kinds of things that, that they were doing. But in the absence of aggregate final demand and with the cost base that they've already have in place, they're simply plodding along here, waiting for a bigger stimulus to hit. Are investors just plodding along? What are they looking for? Where in the capital structure do you see value? There's, there's a lot of consolidation that's been occurring this year. And, and if you think about the repricing immediately after the election and what you need to drive that higher, you do need some of these Trump policies to come through or you need the central banks to move. And both of those things seem frozen in time. So 
I think the consolidation continues. David Gura and Pim Fox. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio with Bob Michael, J.P. Morgan Asset Management's global CIO, the head of the global fixed income FX and commodities group. And let me pick up from something that Bob Moon just mentioned there, Bob, if uh, if I could. Uh, that read on small business optimism. We had the NFIB small business optimism report out this morning. The survey called for 104.7. Indeed, it was in line with expectations at 104.7. This this read has been good for many months now, going back to to the election. Help us with this ongoing debate about soft data and hard data, the degree to which soft data portends or predicts what the hard data is going to, to show. What's your read on, on that? Well, our read is, is certainly the, the soft data, uh, the sentiment has been moving up uh, very nicely. And there's been some anxiety uh, that you haven't seen it in the hard data but you have seen it in some places. When we look at capital goods shipments, if we go back to the middle of last year, they were down year over year about 5.5%. Currently, they're up about 25 to 3% year over year. And I think that's reflected in small business confidence. And it's not surprising that the small and mid-sized enterprise companies um, in middle America are, are doing well. We've been hearing that. Uh, from our different analysts uh, for the past year. Well, there's, you know, we're going to talk about this in great detail in the, the next hour. So much political risk, so much foreign policy risk uh, right now. When you couple that with the uncertainty out, out of Washington, how difficult, how noisy an environment is that for an investor? It should be noisier than what we're actually seeing in the markets. And that's what's confusing a lot of investors when they look at volatility, they see that volatility hasn't picked up with what they feel the anxiety level of the market should be. I have to remind our clients that there is still this vast pool of central bank liquidity that has flooded the market. Central bank balance sheets have expanded from $4 trillion pre-crisis to $16 trillion equivalents. And by the way, the Fed may be talking about tapering and selling and reducing its balance sheet, but other central banks are still printing money on a monthly basis and buying securities. In the most recent uh, Bloomberg uh, economic brief I was reading this morning, it demonstrated that foreign central banks have been selling U.S. treasuries. They use uh, the central bank of Belgium as a proxy. Uh, That is, in a sense, unwinding a balance sheet. Uh, Does that pose a risk if it's not done in concert with whatever the Federal Reserve does? It does. And, and I think this is where the Fed may have an unsolvable riddle ahead for them, how they try to manage the yield curve control and optimize it. So whether they're lifting front-end rates or they're selling down their own balance sheet, which could put pressure on longer-term rates. If you're a foreign official institution – And it's not just foreign central banks. It's been monetary authorities and sovereign wealth funds. They've been big buyers of U.S. government securities. If they feel that the Fed will abandon support of the long end of the market in somewhat reckless fashion, I'm not suggesting the Fed would. I think they're going to be very thoughtful then they'd rather get out ahead of that. You mentioned this volatility, and I want to see if you can apply this on, on, a, on a larger scale because you know oil markets trading between 53 and 46, this is just in one month, right? So you've got some volatility in oil markets. That seems to ac- actually take into account what goes on geopolitically. But when you look at stocks, it doesn't. nothing seems to phase it. You talk about a North Korean missile uh, launch, 
nothing happens. Uh, what what is it that that you think stock investors are seeing that maybe bond investors aren't? There is a vast pool of liquidity out there. I can't tell you how many clients I talk to that are pleading for a pullback to put money to work in the equity market. What kind of pullback? Everyone would love to see a 7 to 10% pullback, but they get impatient. 2, 3, 5% would be enough. I think there's so much money out there that any kind of pullback, they'd put it to work, assuming that the Fed is as transparent as, and as gradual as they have been. And there is some progress that comes out of Trump policies in Washington. I think there are buyers on every pullback. Conversely, when I look at the bond market and I talk to some of our investors there, they're buyers on every backup in yields. So they look at where long yields are. They understand the Fed is trying to normalize and seek a higher level that's more neutral. But in their view, they've heard that many times before. They have liabilities that they have to defease. So every 25 basis point pullback, you're going to see more buying. That's the power of the cash that's out there. Let's look ahead, if we could, to, to bank earnings coming out a little later this week on Thursday. We get the first three big banks. And maybe I could just ask you about the sector and the degree to which it's preparing for a change to the regulatory structure here in, in the U.S. And, and let me fold into that the news out of yesterday. You had Jess Staley getting a bit of a clawback in pay in light of a uh, what he did with regard to a, to a whistleblower at Barclays. You had John Stumpf's a salary getting You're so back. diplomatic, David. I like the way you did that, yeah. Yeah, John Stumpf getting some, some money taken away from his pay package as well. Are we seeing a, a, a cultural shift at all in light of those those uh, those two instances from this week? Um, you are. You're, 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 you have definitely seen an evolution of banking over the last several years. And if you look at the degree to which regulation has pervaded the market, it's been a mixed bag. Some of it has been excellent. It's put banking on more stable footing. It's given the consumer confidence to put deposits into banks. All of those things are good. But is there a point in time where some deregulation could create an expansion of credit? And when I look at some of the U.S. banks and a lot of the European banks, you wonder if they didn't have to hold such high levels of capital, would you see them extending credit through the system and then helping to accelerate the recovery? Bob, I'm sorry to say this, but you've been in the business for 35 years. <laughs> so that's not, that, I wanted to just set that uh, at least 35 yeah, years. I wanted to set that uh, straight. Uh, the reason being, I'm wondering, and I know that you studied classics at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, is there a Greek myth that you would use to describe what's going on in the United Kingdom and Brexit? Because you've spent time in London. What, what do you think is going to happen? It's a feature of many media uh, reports today about what's going to happen to London. Well, it, it is concerning because I Self-inflicted. Well, and, and I moved to London in, in 2001. I spent close to 10 years there. I saw the buildup of the UK and London around banking. Uh, and now that, that they're exiting uh, the EU, you have to wonder, will the EU allow European banking to be domiciled outside of it uh, in London? I'm not so sure. I think it's a tricky time uh, for, for the UK. And certainly, if you're a European economy, you should be bidding for components of banking which reside in London because it's attractive. You have a population of very well-educated, well-paid uh, consumers, um, and it's going to be inviting. 
where do we go from here? We have this 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 two year negotiating period. Uh, is it suffused with uncertainty? Are you pretty confident here? We're going to stick to the timetable laid out by by Theresa May and and uh, being discussed. I guess we should say by uh, Donald Tusk. I think so. I, I think I think both realize that um, there has been a fracture and it's time to move on. I think the EU has to look within the remaining members and think about how to create stability there. And there are elections, certainly, that are are coming up later this month um, in France, and there's an election later in Germany and possibly one in Italy. And that's what the EU has to focus on, how to create a favorable and cohesive environment so that the remaining members stay. Well, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Bob Michael, he is J.P. Morgan's chief investment officer, uh, also uh, global uh, head of fixed income, FX, and uh, commodities. Got a lot on his shoulder. Yes. (laughs) Great to have you here uh, with us. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. George Friedman, he's the founder of Geopolitical Futures, uh, with us here to talk about all that is happening uh, all around the world. So much to talk about, George. Let's begin uh, with that G7 meeting. Safe to say the agenda Talk about ripping up the script in true surveillance fashion here. The agenda for that G7 meeting changed radically last week after that gas attack uh, in Syria and then the the response by the U.S. afterward. What was discussed at the G7? What do you expect to come out of the meeting? Well, first, the agenda changed, but the outcome didn't. Nothing was done. Uh, That's usual for G7 meetings these days. Uh, Basically, the Europeans refused to really think about more sanctions on the Russians, and the Americans demanded it just pro forma. They didn't expect any new sanctions. So we come out of that meeting with the West kind of split and in a weak position. Uh, You you look at at, at sort of the, the degree to which the White House has been consolidating uh, power and, and favor from other other places around the world. I mentioned the phone call that Theresa May had with President Trump last night. He also spoke with German Chancellor Angela Merkel. We've uh, seen people from all over the world weighing in, leaders from all over the world weighing in. What's the White House's objective here after those strikes? We hear them adamant about the fact that this was a one-off. They don't intend this to change their Syria policy uh, radically. How difficult is it to maintain that position in light of what, what happened last week? Well, in the case of Syria, they probably can <clears throat> if they want to. But the real thing they're doing right now is trying to figure out what their Middle East strategy is and what their strategy toward Russia is going to be. They're also looking back at the alliance and seeing how it holds together. In other words, all the things they said during the campaign is falling away, and they're becoming a pretty conventional president. This is absolutely normal. Uh, Presidents run on one set of promises, and they govern another. George, I'm wondering if you could comment about the U.S. military presence in countries such as Jordan and also the role of the United States in the conflict that's taking place in Yemen, because this seems to pit Iran and Saudi Arabia uh, almost using the U.S. and Russia as proxies. Well, that's certainly happening. Uh, In terms of the presence there, uh, it's enough to get us into trouble, not enough to get us out of trouble. And I think this is one of the things that Mattis is looking at, our Secretary of Defense. He's looking at the question of we've exposed troops 
in uh, a whole number of countries without a sufficient number to really fight a major battle if it's imposed on them. And this is really the question we have. I mean, we're all over the place with a light number of troops. Are we going to make another major commitment to the Middle East, or are we going to cut back? One of the things Mattis wants is to make certain that every deployment uh, is viable. And right now we have like a 1,000 troops in Syria, uh, which is enough to get us into trouble, as I said, but not enough to get us out of it. Well, it's already been reported that, for example, 2,500 troops from the 82nd Airborne uh, are going to Kuwait, and then they'll await, obviously, further orders there. Uh, in that context, uh, George, is there a strategy that the United States can implement that would connect with President Donald Trump's pledge to rid the world of ISIS? Well, not with 2,500 troops. Uh, when you consider that we had 150,000 troops in Iraq and they failed to carry out the mission, 2,500 troops uh, really isn't going to do it. They may be able to take, for example, troops around Mosul and add them there and break ISIS there. But the issue isn't ISIS. The issue is the jihadist tendency in the Islamic world. So you break al-Qaeda, ISIS rises. You break ISIS, another group rises. The real strategic question is not to break a particular group, but how do we break this tendency in the Islamic world so it doesn't function? And that is a difficult problem, probably not a military one. George, we'll come back in a little bit, talk about uh, what's going on in the Korean Peninsula and maybe talk about the NATO Secretary General's visit to Washington tomorrow. But let me ask you lastly here just about how different the situation with Syria is than it was in 2013 when President Obama made the uh, now infamous red line remark. Uh, as you just said a moment ago, we have U.S. troops on the ground in Syria, and suffice to say Russia's involvement in the conflict uh, is bigger than it was before. Well, Russia's conflict appears bigger. But it really isn't a very decisive one. They have a few, little over 100 aircraft and some special forces on the ground. Uh, they're not in a position to control the situation. The Americans aren't in a position to control the situation. I think what we all have to understand is that the mere presence of troops doesn't guarantee success. Let's all look at Iraq. Let's all look at Afghanistan and realize that either far more troops than we deploy there are necessary or we're simply nibbling around the edges. Let's talk about uh, what's going on uh, in Asia. We can talk about the, the president's summit with uh, Xi Jinping, the president of China. Let's start there, as a matter of fact. Uh, give us your sense of the outcome of that. Uh, was the news here that there wasn't much news? The news was that there wasn't much news, and that's a lot of news, because rather than a confrontation between the two countries, uh, it seems to have been a pretty low-key. When we go back to the campaign and see what Trump was saying about uh, his relations with China, that also hasn't materialized. And that's what we're generally seeing, that the things he said during the campaign, the things that he's doing are very different, which makes him a very normal president. What's the, what's the president of the U.S. looking at China to do when it comes to, to North Korea? There's been a push for a long time to get uh, China to do more to enforce sanctions that are in place by the international community. Do you see indications that uh, China is going to do that? Well, the Chinese have done that regularly. And, in fact, I'm going to argue that they use crises that Korea generates to pick up points with the United States. First, the Koreans do something outrageous. Then the U.S. goes to the Chinese and asks them to help. Then when the U.S. wants to have trade talks, it kind of is churlish on the part of the United States to raise this after the Chinese bail us out. But we're in a different place now because the North Koreans appear to be close to having a nuclear weapon. Uh, the United States is not going to be allowed that, able to allow that happen 
that means the potential of military action. And therefore, the arrival of the aircraft carrier uh, should be taken very seriously. We just can't allow them to get to the point where they have nuclear weapons and our allies in the region are demanding that. George, uh, speak to the uh, the detail of U.S. military presence in Asia, the uh, U.S. Uh, presence in Okinawa, in South Korea, and now, as you just said, a carrier force. Uh, maybe you could just give us some detail there. Well, the detail is that we have uh, a large number of Marines there and in Guam. We have smaller deployments in other countries, basically, to support them. But the major function that's going to have to be used to take out uh, North Korea's capability, if we choose to do so, will be in a carrier battle group and possibly strategic bombers like B-1, B-2 bombers that can go intercontinentally. The question we have about North Korea is can we take them out with conventional West weapons? Their facilities are buried deep on the ground, we think. Uh, they may not be reachable by conventional weapons, and we're facing the nightmare of having to use nuclear weapons to stop them. That's why Trump demanded that the Japanese develop their own nuclear weapons. We don't want to be the only ones to use nuclear weapons. We certainly dread the idea of using them again, but we also dread a Korean uh, capability. Secretary of Defense uh, James Mattis has made a trip to, to East Asia. He visited uh, South Korea. On the heels of that, the Secretary of State Rex Tillerson uh, did the same, and, and Secretary Tillerson talked about a change in policy uh, toward North Korea. What have you heard about the, the contours of that policy? How is this policy going to be different than the one that we had in the previous administration? Well, in the previous administration, all administrations, our position has been that they have a nuclear program they're probably not going to get nuclear weapons. They certainly don't have nuclear weapons now, so we have time. We can make public statements. We can try sanctions, but we don't have to do anything decisive. We seem to be approaching the point where something decisive has to be done, and that means we want to do it in the context of a coalition. So we want all the rest of Asia, especially China, to be of the opinion that what North Korea is doing is intolerable. And that's one of the reasons why I think the president backed off a confrontation on trade issues. Uh, they want the Chinese to join the coalition. And the Chinese are, in that sense, delighted by the North Korean actions because it removes pressure on them. George, can you speak to the issue of uh, managing power and balance? I know that this is the topic of your book, The Next Decade. Maybe just give us an idea of how that would actually work. Well, we are an extremely powerful country. We're not omnipotent. We cannot simultaneously manage the entire world. We have to decide what parts of the world matter most to us and let them go. So, for example, we may want to pacify the Middle East, but it's not clear that all the military power we have is going to do that. So we have to live with a lesser, less satisfactory situation. We have to decide what matters and what doesn't. Now, there are people who argue that nothing overseas matters. That, I think, is nonsense. There are those who are prepared to go to war simultaneously with everybody. Uh, that's also nonsense. There are some bad situations that we just have to tolerate because we don't have the ability to do anything about it. And that means a very different foreign policy. During the Cold War, we could focus on one country, uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, we can focus during much of the jihadist wars on one or two threats. But as the Chinese emerge, as the Russians emerge, as we continue to have the Middle East, we do not have the force capable of coping with all of them. So we have to prioritize, and we've never done that before, really.
George, let me ask you here to preview uh, the visit by Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General to Washington, D.C. He's going to meet with the president tomorrow. Of course, he met with the Secretary of State a couple of weeks back uh, in Brussels. I'm reminded of the, the joint news conference that President Trump gave with uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Uh, there, he did what many hoped he would do. He, he reaffirmed the U.S. commitment to the alliance, but then quickly pivoted to talk about funding. What's your sense of how this alliance, the, the integrity of this, the alliance at this point, and, and how fulsomely... Uh, the U.S. president embraces it? Well, the way I would put it is the question is not whether the United States will remain loyal to NATO. It's whether the Europeans want to join NATO. This is a military alliance. It consists of military forces. The Europeans have allowed their military forces to deteriorate to almost nothing. Uh, so what is the point of the alliance? I think you know Trump's view is basically that either we have a full alliance that they agree to spend 2% of their GDP on defense, or there's no point in going forward. The Germans have made it absolutely clear they're not going to. Stoltenberg, by the way, sides with the United States. He made a very strong speech saying that the American demand is not only reasonable, but it's something the Europeans agreed to a few years ago. So I think the Stoltenberg visit will go well, but from the American point of view, from my point of view, what use is a military alliance that obligates us to support nations, but the other nations don't have the ability to support us. Well, thanks very much, uh, George Friedman. Interesting conversation. He is the founder and chairman of Geopolitical Futures, uh, giving us really a window into uh, the challenges that the United States faces with foreign policy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.